Remember when I said Trump's not leaving? Sounded pretty crazy, didn't it? Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Northern Miner Podcast. My name is Adrian Pocabelli, and here we are on January 12th, 2021. The future has arrived, and I think it's right on schedule. Everything kind of looks as crazy as you'd kind of hope it would be. People are getting, I guess, a combination of optimism and pessimism with this vaccine. We're optimistic because we actually have one. We're pessimistic because it's taking so long. You know, again, I'm in Germany, and I think that as far as I understand, one of these vaccines was designed in Germany, and here the EU ordered too few. Now, I'm not like super well-read on this topic, but I was talking to my girlfriend, and she has a friend, and she said that Israel is, they expect to have everybody vaccinated by March. And that was pretty interesting. And apparently, again, this is just what my girlfriend told me, so don't go publishing this to your blog. But she was saying that they even told Pfizer that they could use them as a kind of, you know, as a way of monitoring and see how the vaccine is going, just as a way of helping out. So I guess let's be optimistic on that side. I mean, at least somebody is starting to, like, we're going to have some real results here. And if it works, wouldn't that be fabulous? And You know, people have been talking about Europe for the last 10 years as this kind of, you know, slow, old economy that's not really going to do too much. But if this vaccine really comes through, like Europe's going to have the biggest boom, I think, in like 50 years with just tourism. It's going to be insane and it's probably going to be pretty annoying for most Europeans. Uh, But it's uh, going to be insane. And I think they'll be grateful at the end of the day for all these people coming to spend money and save their economy. But nevertheless, Italy could get insane. Venice, what the heck is going to happen in Venice? <laughs> like It was already a political issue. Do they ban the cruise ships? Because it was just like, you know, these cruise ships unload, I don't know, 10,000, 4,000, 20,000 people, whatever it is. <laughs> they dump them into the main streets of Venice one after the other. And it's just like, the so-called locals, you, like, you mean there's locals in Venice? Yeah, like, I mean, so it just gets insane. I haven't been to Venice in a long time. I'd like to go. They have some incredible art shows over there. Anyway, so looking at the metals and the markets, so we had this big jump in the U.S. dollar yesterday, kind of crashed Bitcoin a little bit. The markets were kind of tepid. Let's look at what the U.S. market did here. Yeah, markets were down 90 points on the Dow Jones, about a third of a percent. So basically they stopped going up. VIX is at 23, interesting, so relatively low, not super, super low, but pretty low. Yeah, so we had this jump in the dollar, but it's really, you look at that dollar chart and it just looks like a cascading waterfall. So is this a turnaround? Probably not. I mean, who knows? You would think gold would be performing better. You would think gold would be performing better. I mean, it was up half a percent, but it's only at $1,860.70. Now, the miners, of course, have zero problem with $1,860 gold. As George Salamis was pointing out, that's just fine. Thank you. But from an investment perspective, it's kind of lame. It's a little lame. And, you know, people said, oh, well, Bitcoin crashed. You know, I was looking at the one week. Like, so Bitcoin was up at like 40 one or almost $42,000. Now it's at 35. You know what's funny? 
from seven days ago, it's up 11%. That's after the so-called crash. That's what's going on over there. Now, putting on my speculator hat here, and this isn't investment advice, but I do expect gold to play catch up at some point. I don't know if it'll catch up all the way. As we see in the metals section, industrial metals are hitting new highs. So isn't that interesting? So that's kind of the landscape. So you're a mining company and that landscape or you're in the mining business, I think things are looking pretty good for you. Like, you know, Jeffrey Curry's uh, the commodities chief analyst or whatever he is at Goldman Sachs is calling for the major bull market in commodities, I think in the next decade. And that looks like it's right on schedule. So this business looks like it's really looking good, especially if you're in these industrial metals. You know, it's funny you know, like the gold and silver, like there's so much of this, like I'm not, you know, I don't want to journey too far into the province of conspiracy, but gold and silver, there is so much paper gold and silver that it's like, I mean, that's kind of the nice thing about something like Bitcoin. Like people are, the Bitcoiners, they're all like, oh, can't wait for the ETF. I'm, I'm sort of like, you know what? Maybe that's why it's all going up because they, there's less derivatives. And so it's harder to manipulate. Now, before you think I'm in the crazy camp, uh, don't forget JP Morgan got like a billion dollar fine a couple of months ago for manipulating, what what do they call it, spoofing uh, gold and silver and precious metals, as well as even the bond market, if memory serves. So, which to me actually sounds like a 10 times bigger deal, start manipulating Uh, government treasuries. I mean, that's kind of insane. So within all this, we have a great thought leadership piece with EY, who are all over the place right now, in a good way. I see them a ton on in just various media. They really, it seems like they're making a push because I didn't hear a ton about EY like a year ago. And now I'm seeing and I was like, isn't that Ernst & Young? Now I just think of them as EY. Their branding has completed its process on me. We have a couple of assurance experts from EY. We have Dean Brownsteiner, who's a partner, and he's in assurance at EY Canada. And we also have Eric Simmons, who is a partner, and he's also in assurance at EY Canada. And they're both involved in mining as well. So you know, I didn't really know too much about what assurance is. So if you don't know what assurance is, this is your interview because I kind of get them to explain what on earth they're up to. And it's actually relatively simple once you kind of understand the concept, but it's all new and it's actually quite important, particularly if you are kind of on the more corporate side of the mining sector, if you're in a mining company, big or small It's actually really interesting what they're up to here. So it's in-depth interview. I think we went like 30 minutes here and it's pretty interesting. And do stay for that. We have some very interesting stories, which I can't wait to get into. If you want to find us online, you can find us at northernminer.com. You can find us on Twitter at Northern Miner. You can find us on Instagram at The Northern Miner. You can find us on Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube, where we also host these podcasts and wherever podcasts are available. And with that, let's turn to the news. And turning to the website, we have this big story that came out just as we were putting together last week's podcast. The the drama of it, I don't think, is any less. Agnico 
is taking over TMAC, and it's a friendly deal, and it's a pretty big deal. And this is by Alicia Hyatt, editor-in-chief of the Canadian Mining Journal and Diamonds in Canada. Only two weeks after the federal government blocked a takeover of struggling Nunavut gold miner TMAC resources by China's Shandong Gold Mining, TMAC has found itself in the arms of a Canadian white knight, Agnico Eagle Mines. Yeah, it really is a white knight sort of situation because remember, like the government denied Shandong Gold permission to take over TMAC based on national security grounds, based on where it was located in the Canadian Arctic, and they had concerns there. So they stopped it, you know, and then TMAC came out and said, hey, we have pretty serious debt issues which are going to come to a head in the next year. And I basically said, well, I think you can get a loan, but uh, looks like something even better happened. Agnico Eagle came to the rescue, and now the government doesn't really need to worry about stranding this company that kind of was in a little bit of dire straits. And so from a Canadian perspective, I think they would say it's a happy ending. Uh, let's continue. On January 5th, Agnico announced a friendly bid for TMAC of $2.20 per share, 45 cents per share higher than the $1.75 per share Shandong had offered. The offer represents a 66% premium to TMAC's 20-day volume-weighted share prices of January 4th. That's also interesting, hey? So... It ends up selling for a significant amount more. You know, I can't help but think that Sean Boyd, CEO of Ignico Eagle, and the company at large are really, I think, uh, I think the government would probably be pretty appreciative of what they're doing. And it looks like it's a good project, frankly, for Ignico Eagle. We're going to get into that. But I imagine this doesn't hurt your standing with the government. Let's put it that way. I think they probably really appreciate what Agnico Eagle has done here, let's continue. As part of the deal, the gold major will also retire TMAC's outstanding debt and deferred interest and fees. TMAC's single producing asset is Hope Bay in northern Nunavut, 125 kilometers southwest of Cambridge Bay. The operation has underperformed since first gold was poured in 2017, requiring TMAC to make investments to improve the mill and increase its capacity to 2,000 tons per day from 1,000 tons per day. So they were having mostly operational issues. So again, you get Agnico coming in here who are probably masters in that domain. The deal would put the asset in the hands of an experienced miner who already has a large presence in Nunavut. Agnico currently operates the Meadowbank complex and the Miliadine mine in the territory. And we have a quote from Sean Boyd. Quote, we are very pleased to have the opportunity to bring our extensive northern operational and community experience to the Hope Bay mine and the Katikmiat region of Nunavut. Together with the TMAC team and our Nunavut partners, we look forward to advancing exploration and expansion initiatives to realize the full potential of the mine and its large underexplored land package. TMAC president and CEO Jason Neal noted the acquisition by Agnico was a positive outcome for all stakeholders. And he said in a press release, quote, our company spent almost the entirety of 2020 under the uncertainty of a strategic review process and the Canadian government review of the sale to Shandong with an impending debt maturity compounded by the anxiety of the global pandemic. The acquisition being completed by Agnico Eagle is a great outcome for all stakeholders. Agnico Eagle is one of the strongest gold producers internationally, a Canadian champion, and has been operating in Nunavut for more than a decade with a great track record with communities, employees, and the environment. The transaction, which is the transaction is expected to close by February 8th. 
He has the support of major shareholders, I assume TMAC shareholders, including Resource Capital Funds, Newmont, Shandong, and TMAC directors and officers who hold 62.3% of the company's shares. And we have finally Barry Allen, who's Laurentian Bank mining analyst. He said, quote, this is a very clean made in Canada solution that solves TMAC's near-term hurdles. He also expressed confidence that Ignico will be able to turn Hope Bay around, quote, unlock the extensive value of the Hope Bay Greenstone Belt, and ultimately demonstrate the acquisition of TMAC resources to be very accretive to Ignico shareholders. So there are more details, but it looks like a kind of a, as uh, Barry Allen put it, a happy Made in Canada ending to the TMAC saga. And what a saga it was. That lasted more than half a year. And it was very controversial. It's funny how things go, isn't it? Turning to our next story, sort of another government minor story. Mongolia threatens to revoke Rio Tinto's plan for Oyu Tolgoy. And this is by Cecilia Jamazmi, Mining.com. The government of Mongolia may cancel and replace the development and financial plan for the country's vast Oyu Tolgoy copper gold mine, Turquoise Hill Resources said. The company, which is controlled by Rio Tinto, said Mongolian authorities are dissatisfied with its plans and are particularly concerned about the costs of the expansion, recently updated to $6.75 billion, about $1.5 billion higher than its original estimate. In 2019, Rio Tinto flagged stability risks associated with the original project design, which translated into as much as an additional $1.9 billion cost and a 30-month delay. The miner confirmed the new cost estimate for the underground expansion in December and noted that production would begin in October 2022. Now, again, Rio Tinto, like, I don't, nobody knows the story here as to, but man, can they not avoid controversy? Erdenese Oyutolgoy LLC, the Mongolian state-owned company that owns a third of the mine, reacted to the new timeline and budget by saying, this is the one that... Rio Tinto had proposed to kind of get things going in October 2022 for $1.9 billion more dollars. They reacted to the new timeline and budget by saying that Rio Tinto had not delivered on its 2015 promises. Erdina's interest in Oyutolgoy is technically held through a 34% in a Mongolian company called Oyutolgoy LLC. The remaining stake belongs to Turquoise Hill Resources, which is 50% owned by Rio Tinto. And so Turquoise Hill responded by saying, quote, the government of Mongolia has indicated that if the Oyu-Tolgoy project is not economically beneficial to the country, it would be necessary to review and evaluate whether it can proceed. And then just a little bit further down, under scrutiny, Mongolia had requested an independent review of the cost blowout and delays at the project, with results expected in early 2021. The dispute over funding the expansion's sudden cost increase began heating up in early November, when Turquoise Hill launched arbitration proceedings against Rio Tinto to get clarity on funding. The mining giant had said it will not allow Canada's Turquoise Hill to take on more than $500 million in additional debt, it has also asked Turquoise Hill to fill a funding gap of up to $3 billion by reprofiling loans and raising equity. Right, and then finally, minority investors in Turquoise Hill, including U.S. hedge fund Pentwater Capital, oppose Rio Tinto's attempts to force the Canadian miner to conduct an equity raise. There are, quote, much cheaper and more advantageous financing options, end quote, available to the company, such as streaming and bond financing. I think I even mentioned that in a previous episode that they could just dial up Franco Nevada or their friends at Saul Gold to find out how. Okay, so 
interesting business. It's a pretty big copper gold mine in Mongolia, so it's no small matter. And Rio Tinto, once again, at the heart of the storm. Continuing on, we have major mining reforms are being proposed in the Yukon. This is by Kelsey Rolfe, who is a contributor to the Northern Miner. Always writes really interesting, in-depth stories. And this one, so yeah, if you're mining in the Yukon or thinking about it, you must read this story. It is very important. It's on the northernminer.com. Major reforms proposed in Yukon Mineral Development Strategy Report. Okay. So we're just going to touch on this. Developing new mining legislation, creating a water use tax, and completing the Yukon's six outstanding land use plans in the next five years are among the substantial list of recommendations made by the independent panel in charge of the territory's mineral development strategy. The panel's final report, released December 28th, contains 79 recommendations meant to guide future mineral development in the territory. It was developed as part of a 2017 Memorandum of Understanding on Mining between the Yukon government and 11 self-governing First Nations. Yukoners have until February 22nd to comment on the report. We have a quote from Yukon Chamber of Mines President Ed Pert in an interview with the Northern Miner. Quote, this could shape the way that mineral development's done in the Yukon for the foreseeable future. So this deserves a lot of attention. According to the panel members, Math Ayea Alatini, chief strategist at GSD Strategies and former chief of Kluan First Nation, the panel aimed to balance the needs of multiple stakeholders. And we have a quote from her, quote, we looked at creating a balance of a number of considerations that would increase transparency and increase the level of confidence that proponents would have when it comes to the Yukon, she continued, quote, it addressed the proponents, the First Nations side and the NGOs and environmental protection side in a way that is balanced and is hearing all sides of the argument. So that is just a taster. And Kelsey goes quite in depth in this interview. So do check it out. New mining regs are being proposed in the Yukon. And finally, touch on a couple of more stories here. Ivanhoe Mines sounds like they are going to try and have their Kamoa Kakula operation in production in the next six months. So that is by mining.com staff. Do check that out because that's a very exciting project that is going on in the Democratic Republic of Congo. And uh, yeah, we've been following that story here at the Northern Miner from basically inception to production. And it's always a massive deposit from the sounds of it, massive copper deposit mostly, but it sounds like there's Platinum and palladium, at least in one of those nearby areas, there's a couple of big things, but this is mostly a copper project from what I understand. I remember when that was 30 cents. Last I checked, it was around the 5 to $7 mark. I haven't looked recently. And finally, USA Rare Earth outlines domestic mine to magnet strategy. And I just want to touch on this by Trish Saywell, editor-in-chief, the Northern Miner. And I just want to touch on this because this is just something we're hearing more and more, which is North America getting its act together on rare earths. And they really don't want to rely on China anymore because these metals are critical. They're really taking action on this. And just read a couple of paragraphs here. Since founding privately held USA Rare Earth three years ago, Pini Elthouse has focused on turning his vision of creating a secure supply of rare earth elements in the United States into a reality. So that's only three years ago. So this is interestingly during the Trump administration where they were pretty pro getting things onshored, getting a lot of these mining operations onshored. And here's kind of the rub. 
The New York-based CEO is equally determined to establish REE, rare earth separation and processing capabilities in the U.S. and build manufacturing facilities for magnets, containing the critical elements that are used in everything from American Tomahawk missiles and fighter jets to electric vehicles and wind turbines. It is essential, he said, in order to wean the world from its dependence on processing REEs in China, which in recent years has also become a net REE importer. So politics aside, there could just be a basic supply and demand issue here. China starts using more of their own rare earths. And then we also have a quote from the Linus CEO. Everyone outside of China is at China's mercy to provide these materials. So if we don't develop mines and processing facilities outside of China, manufacturing grinds to a halt. The Australian CEO said in an interview, adding that the Asian powerhouse is also, quote, expanding its stranglehold on the minerals beyond its border. China is going around the globe trying to find rare earth projects to develop, which is putting a squeeze not just on the U.S., but also countries like South Korea, Japan, and Australia, he said. The U.S. has to step up its game. So this rare earth thing, you know, James Dines, 10 years ago, waved the red flag on this, and here we are. He's so ahead of his time. Here we are 11, 12 years later, and (laughs) better late than never, James. We... USA Rare Earth is doing their part. So there's your news stories. Now let's take a look at metal prices because some pretty interesting stuff going on over there. We would like to thank our friends at mining.com slash markets for providing us with these prices each and every week. And on January 12th, gold is trading at $1,857.41 per ounce. That is $93 lower than last week's quote. Silver is also trading lower at $25.34. That is $2.05 lower than last week. Platinum is also trading $20 lower at $1,061.97 per ounce. And palladium is trading at $2,376.83. That is $68 lower than last week's quote. And turning to our industrial metals, copper is trading higher at $3.70. That is 19 cents higher, continuing the uptrend. Aluminum is trading at 92 cents per pound. That is two cents higher than last week's quote. Lead is trading at 91 cents per pound. That is two cents higher. Nickel cracks $8 at $8.11. That is 61 cents higher than last week's quote. Tin is also on fire at $9.67 per pound. That is 35 cents higher than last week's quote. And cobalt is also higher at $16.56. That is $2.04 higher than last week. And zinc is also higher at $1.28 per pound. That is $0.04 higher. It was not long ago, maybe a few months ago, uh, zinc was trading at $0.84 per pound. So that's a 50% move, folks. So what do we see here? Precious metals down. Definitely not out, but... Uh, They are trending downwards compared to last week. Uh, So precious metals, I guess for lack of a better word, kind of remain stagnant while industrial metals 
show new strength, more strength, we are seeing an acceleration. We're seeing prices that basically since we started registering these prices a year and a half ago that we haven't seen. So keep your eyes on these industrial metals because they are really making moves now and it's pretty consistent. So those are your metal prices. And coming up, we have Dean Brownsteiner, partner in assurance at EY Canada, and Eric Simmons, partner in assurance at EY Canada. Their work both applies and deals with the mining industry. So it's pretty interesting. And the topic that we deal with is really the future of assurance and how to build trust in a digital world. So EY, again, they are making the rounds. They are really putting themselves out there as good consultants would. So get the latest, hottest take on assurance and actually how important it is for your company if you're a miner uh, and whether you're the biggest to the smallest, this matters. So I really hope you enjoy the interview and I will see you on the other side. Joining me today on the podcast, I'm very pleased to welcome Dean Brownsteiner and Eric Simmons, and they are from EY Canada. And Dean and Eric are both assurance partners in mining at EY Canada. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Adrian. Happy to be here with you today. Appreciate the opportunity. Thanks very much, Adrian. Great. Well, it's great to hear from you guys. I see EY in the news quite often, actually, and they're usually talking about pretty interesting things. It's a pretty dynamic organization. So we're on a mining podcast. Uh, EY recently has participated in a global mining symposium by the Northern Miner. Uh, so tell me, what is it that you guys are up to? What are you doing with the mining industry? Uh, Dean, if you'd like to begin, uh, t- tell us what you're up to. Yeah, sure, Adrian. So, so I would say my day job is really around doing audits of mining companies. And so when investors get their year-end financial statements, they'll see the opinion in there from EY. Uh, that tells you that we've done a financial statement audit of the company's financial results. And, and it really involves us working with our, our clients throughout the year for, you know, in order to be able to pr- provide that assurance. And you know, one of the things that we've started to look at, which is kind of interesting as, as the world moves into more of a, I'll call it a digital environment, lots of data, uh, we've certainly discovered that uh, stakeholders, not just mining companies, but uh, are looking for more timely, relevant, uh, and also accurate data outside of just the financial statements. Uh, and so we're starting to see you know, a lot more requests in the area of providing assurance uh, on things that are not just financial reporting related. Um, and so I think that's what's bringing us here today to have that conversation. And I myself as well, um, more than a decade of experience providing that uh, those audits for mining companies and watching the evolution of the standards, helping companies adapt. And I would agree with Dean, you know, I've been, I've been helping and uh, in, in getting involved in implementation of a lot of these new technologies and, and, and developments that we're seeing how they can be leveraged to to really improve the the uh, trust in financial reporting. Excellent. Okay, very interesting. Now, I have a kind of a newbie question for someone. I've never run a mining company. So, Dean, is this something that all mining companies need to have? Uh, certainly for for public companies. So, so having their financial statements audited is, 
is a requirement of the various securities exchange commissions, uh, where there now seems to be a push is, as I mentioned, uh, should there be more assurance provided on information that's outside of the financial statements? So the financial statements are this quantifiable data, and that needs to be audited to make sure it's correct. But but now you're saying it's also regarding other matters that need to be audited. So tell us about that. Right, Adrian. It's not so much that this stuff needs to be audited, uh, but what we're finding in, I'll call it society in general, is with the amount of data and information that's available, people want to know, you know if they're reading something that there's been... Um, some rigor put around it that they can trust the information. And so what we're suggesting or thinking is, you know, auditors are good at providing assurance. And so there's an opportunity to lift and shift that framework to information that is outside of the financial statement. So for instance, you know, companies are, are you know, putting out ESG reports. And so there's a good framework around how to develop an ESG report and, and most mining companies do this very well, but there is a question around what's the level of assurance that someone's gone through that report to ensure that it's accurate. Um, and so someone making uh, some sort of an investment decision, stakeholders can rely on that information in order to make that decision that they're looking uh, to make. Very interesting. Eric, did you have anything to add to that? From my perspective, I, I think, uh, you know, we see more and more data increasingly being used at more granular levels to drive decisions, both, you know, internally and externally. I'm, I'm sure Dean has a couple of examples he could give, but, you know, I think ESG is a great one. I think there's several other examples of, you know, where we're seeing more information than what we would see just, for example, financial statements that are increasingly becoming important for investors. And, and the extent of trust, you know, that's necessary to, to rely on them is, uh, you know, in, in this environment, I would say, you know, it's 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 critical that we can build and preserve trust in, in that internal and external reporting, given the magnitude of some of the investor decisions being made. How does that work, say, translating this financial framework onto, say, something like ESG? I assume that you're still kind of going with some kind of quantifiable data. Or like, is the difference that it sort of becomes more of a qualitative interpretation at a certain point? Eric, do you want to start on this? Uh, sure. I mean, if we want to talk specifically on uh, a good example, which would be, you know, uh, sustainability reporting assurance, that's a huge field right now. Interestingly, you, if you pick up a couple of the big name mining companies, you can see they have assurance reports, um, you know, all over their sustainability uh, but they're referencing entirely different assurance frameworks, and there's a laundry list of them. And, you know, there's one specific to greenhouse gas reporting. There's other ones that are uh, specific to very different elements of, of what we would consider sustainability reporting. Uh, but it's a it's a very kind of um, it's a it's a it's an industry in flux. I'll say there's a lot of different frameworks underway right now. And we're starting to see some convergence on these standards, but it's a very big field right now. Uh, Dean, do you have anything to add on that? Or? Well, Adrian, the thing that I would add um, to, to what Eric's talked about is is the level of assurance that's being provided. So it will range anywhere from someone's read the report and they, you know, they've said it seems consistently prepared versus the type of framework that we're talking about would actually go back to source documents to ensure that whatever ends up in the sustainability report can be tied back to something that the company has done internally, whether it be um, tracking greenhouse gases, as Eric mentioned, 
uh, or if it related to environmental work that was done during the year. Again, it's tying it back to the actual physical work that's been done, whether it's, you know, uh, if it is cost incurred, you could trace it back to an invoice for an example. So it's it's right. providing a deeper level of rigor. And then, so those are kind of the two extremes and you'll find uh, that there's other firms out there that would do anything kind of in between. So ESG is the, uh, would you call that the main focus beyond financial reporting then, or are you finding there are other subjects in a sense, is this a burgeoning field, assurance beyond financial statements? Is this a whole kind of growing field or has it already kind of existed before and now it's just getting kind of reformatted somehow? Could you help me out with that? Yeah, so I would say it's it's a growing field and there's just an expectation that companies that are putting information out into the public, there's a requirement for them to to ensure that there's been a bit more rigor put around that information before it's being released. And so, you know, we've talked a lot about ESG, but it would apply similarly to, you know, just a generally a company's press release that they put out. Uh, if they're, you know, referring to uh, certain cost metrics or expectations about future profitability that somehow they've put some, or there's an opportunity to put some level of assurance around that ensuring that uh, stakeholders who are relying on it, let's say from an, an investor's perspective, uh, that that information is reliable. And oftentimes, you know, companies, when we talk about financial statements, you know, will come out three months after the year end. So in in, in a world of digital and data, timeliness is, is critically important. And so why should an investor wait until you know, three months after the fact to make an investment decision on on maybe historical information. Is is there a way to get, you know, certain key data or key information into an investor's hands much earlier and having some level of assurance provided on it as opposed to waiting until the year-end audit in that example? I'm not sure if that makes sense to you. It's it's starting to. <laughs> I'm joking. I'm joking. Yeah, no, it does make sense. Eric, uh, do you have anything to add? Yeah, for sure. I mean, Dean's talking about it from an external perspective, for sure. You think about, you know, cash costs or ASIC or something like that. It's an incredibly important metric for, you know, stakeholders that are using that information for their models, for example. But, you know, I think about it even internally, right? So you know, internally, you see a lot of operational dashboards pulling information from all kinds of sources. You got site and corporate reporting systems that might not be integrated. So there's you know, time and risk of inaccuracy in that. And the information might be old by the time executives get to it. So, you know, you think about internal decision-making, a great example would be, you know, you've got a, a billion-dollar capital project that a, a board's, you know, mandate requires them to monitor. Um, but, you know, that information is coming perhaps not timely. And uh, and in, uh, more often than not, there's never really any independent verification of that information. But obviously, you know, monitoring a billion-dollar capital project, you know, you get a lot more comfort if there was some assurance over that information. So how do you go about assuring something like a company outlook, you know, projecting three or six months into the future? It sounds to me like that's a pretty challenging thing to do. It's not a black or white issue. There's a number of things that, um, you know, under an assurance framework we would do. So it, normally it would be things like looking back to how management's preparing their estimates. What process do they go through? Who's approving it? Oftentimes, you know, companies will have, you know, a process that they'll follow to develop those estimates. And so it's being able to kind of retrace those steps to making sure that it's been done 
in, in a way that um, that's logical and, and makes sense. And as you said, it's not uh, black or white, uh, right or wrong. There's a number of estimates that go into it. And, and so there's some judgment being applied, but it's looking around how that, how that, how those judgments were applied and who at the company has been involved. So for instance, if, if the geologist hadn't been involved in developing future production expectations, you know, that would be something that would be a bit of a red flag because obviously they're pretty important to that, to, to that estimation process. So, so that would be kind of an example. The other would be more, I, I would call it rear view looking. So around um, production costs and, and being able to come out quickly after a period end and saying, you know, our, the company's cash costs were, you know, a certain amount compared to what they were budgeting. And it's providing assurance that that actual amount that they're reporting, again, ties back to, to their underlying uh, data and, and accounting records. Right. So there's a, it's a kind of verification of sorts on, say, their numbers. So you might go to that company and say, can you provide me with evidence of what you're saying? And where would I go to actually make this determination if you're saying you're going to make, you know, produce 5,000 tons of gold this month? Are, are you saying, hey, should I can I talk to your production manager or stuff like that? Absolutely, it it goes beyond finance, and so it's 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 going into the organization, uh, and and really identifying those people who are pulling the information, the data together, and who are making some of the key decisions. Yeah, and and I mean the technology is there now, such that you know we can be tapped directly into site data, whether it's financial data or non-financial data, such that, you know, by the time it's in a company's system, you know, we, we, we're already at the point where we're able to, you know, conduct procedures to validate it, uh, such that, you know, by the time people are getting reports on cash costs or ASIC, you know, there, there's the ability to perform assurance on it so that, you know, well in advance of press releases, there's a level of comfort, you know, over that information. Uh, so the, I would say the technology is certainly there at this stage. And what are you seeing, Eric, on the technological front? Like, what is the the bleeding edge of, say, yeah. would I be right to call it quality assurance? No, you're, it's just assurance, isn't it? It's assurance um, in, in the broadest sense. But I would yeah. say the technology is really on the cutting edge. And, and fortunately, the audit firms have done a lot in this area that I think will trickle into industry. But uh you know, I mentioned having instant access to site data that already exists. You know, data analytics and machine learning is being implemented by the assurance firms. Uh, there's a lot that you can do with that. You know, I've heard about examples of machine learning being used. Obviously, we could use it to do things like, a, you know, unusual contract term identification. But in the mining industry, I've even heard of it being used, you know, uh, to predict equipment failures or maintenance timelines and things like that. So definitely, you know, very powerful tools on the technology front that could be used for a variety of applications and, and, and also to provide very efficient, high quality assurance. Dean, do you have anything to add on that? I mean, I think Eric's, you know, touched on the key, um, the key uses of technology. And I think that area is going to continue to grow um, as we get more comfortable with blockchain technology uh, I think you know that once it's more widely accepted, will become uh, certainly uh, a leading edge in terms of providing uh, you know assurance and accuracy over information. But there needs to be a wider pickup of that kind of data or that technology. You know, it's so interesting. I was just watching an interview. I think it was on Real Vision, and it was I think the guy was from EY, and he was talking about Ethereum and supply chains and all that. And I thought it was quite interesting. And so, yeah, so it sounds like, 
And you hear about supply chain as being one of the big use cases of blockchain. So yeah, so it's interesting. Do you, is EY doing anything, at least in say EY Canada and your guys' offices? Is there any sort of active movement in that direction or is it more waiting for more people to get on board so that it's more just feasible? So clearly we're in the midst of developing, you know, technology that helps audit the, you know, the, the use of blockchain and how it flows from uh, beginning to end. Um, I would say it's in its infancy. So certainly uh, something that we're focused on, um, but it'll continue to evolve as as time goes on and as as companies start to identify various uses to to adopt blockchain, whether it's supply chain uh, or to to kind of manage their their revenue cycle as well. Eric, do you have anything to add on that? Yeah, I would just say, um, you know, I think there's a lot of other things that we're seeing on the supply chain side in terms of data analytics and so on that, that are being done, you know, in advance of blockchain being widely adopted at the uh, in the industry level. Uh, you know, whether it's payment terms analysis, uh, vendor management analysis, but there's a lot more being done nowadays with data to help improve the quality of supply chain. And we've definitely seen that on our end as well. And a follow-up question. So who is who is asking for this assurance? Is it investors ultimately? Is it government? Is it kind of everybody wants to have a better idea? Is there kind of a push from somewhere for people that aren't super familiar with assurance in that business? Who, who's demanding it? The markets? Yeah, so certainly the markets um, are, are demanding better, more timely information and, and wanting to know that if they're making investment decisions on it, uh, that uh, the information being provided is, um, is, is accurate. I would say that um, the pickup of providing assurance on it, so, so companies going through the process of, of having assurance strategies or, or uh, assurance procedures done on non-financial information, it's slow at the moment. And part of the reason for that is there isn't a huge demand uh, from investors or other stakeholders. They want better information. They want it to be accurate, um, but they haven't quite figured out how to get there. And that's why we're suggesting using kind of the existing assurance framework that we use for financial statements would apply or could be easily applied to to non-financial information. The, the one exception is we are seeing regulators wanting to make sure that companies in their public filings have a level of assurance that's in discussions. And you hear the the concern from regulators that there's a lot of what I call uh, non non-gap measures in, in press releases and MDNA, which means it's tough to tie them back to the financial statements. And so the concern there is, is this an opportunity for companies to represent results in a way that may not be consistent with their their annual accounts. Like it seems to me like, let's say the government puts these uh, a cap on greenhouse emissions. At a certain point, someone has to verify this stuff. And how do you verify? Like, is that something that hasn't really been thought about ahead of time? Or have they already thought this through as to how you actually verify this stuff? Is that in your bailiwick, so to speak, or I don't know, Eric or Dean, yeah. whoever, like, am I just <laughs> uninformed? Like, what, do they realize what they're doing? I mean, cer certainly from a you know, audit firms, assurance providers are in a unique position in that this is what we do for a living. We, 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 we identify ways of, you know, determining whether something is factual or not. So we are in a unique position to uh, design the types of procedures necessary to validate. Um, and so right. as the 
as the assurance standards evolve around things like climate change, we're on the forefront of designing the procedures necessary to to reach that standard. It sounds uh, like a why, sounds like no, a booming was, business. It, it absolutely is, and that's why you are seeing the you know the the, the big four you know the big accounting firms are are conducting a, a ton of hiring of, of specialists with you know mining or environmental or community relations specializations to be able to you know excel in this field and and combine you know our existing experience with assurance with that that sort of specific industry level knowledge. And and that's fascinating because I'm thinking in terms of the environment, but you're saying there's also assurance on the social level. Oh, yes. I mean, I, I guess there's different elements to what can be assured. Um, and if you're starting to look at the way that the ESG reporting frameworks are coming together, uh, there's a whole bunch of different facets to, to ESG reporting above and beyond, obviously, environmental uh, that, you know, companies are looking to provide assurance over. How interesting. So saying it is not enough, right? <laughs> I suppose that's true. Yeah. Like you yeah. want kind of some kind of verification. Very interesting. But maybe in the past it was enough, right? On the, on say social issues. It's like, well, we're doing these things. You don't necessarily in 20 years ago need to get a, that audited. That's, that's right, Adrian. And so, um, and even at the moment there, there's not a requirement to have this information audited, but what we're thinking is as, you know, if, I, if I'm a mining company and I want to distinguish myself from my peers, wouldn't it be great if I took my ESG report and said, it's been through a rigorous process and I can, you know, have, have a third party come in and provide assurance on, on the, key, the key elements of that report. So when you big investment bank or, or in, you know, someone in the investment industry wants to put money into my company, you can appreciate that we're doing all the right things and we've had someone come in and vet that from an ESG perspective. And and yeah, and that's exactly the issue, like one of the big issues, right? You get someone like BlackRock come out and say, hey, we're kind of focused on ESG friendly companies. And so I guess there's also that side of things too, where you can, where it's valuable to the mining company who might, you know, traditionally has not a great reputation in ESG and can say, hey, you know, we are doing fabulous work. Look at look at our what our auditors say. So we can assure you. And so maybe someone like BlackRock cannot feel so bad about putting money into that mining company. Absolutely. And and I think that's the the rub is is until you know the BlackRocks of the world um you know, make key investment decisions on on that kind of reporting, that will incentivize CEOs and boards to to maybe take this a bit more seriously and have that rigor of assurance provided on things like, you know, the ESG reports or, or other non-financial data, or when companies, you know, look to make capital allocations, um, you know, mining company who, who's got a, a ESG report that someone's provided that third-party assurance on, you know, will be able to access that capital and maybe get a better share price. So uh, that's their incentive. And, and I, from my perspective, that seems to be missing at the at the moment. And that's why uh, perhaps not as many companies are, are seeking that high level of assurance as, as, as one would think. Is that a challenge then, Dean, that you find in the industry, say the mining industry in particular? In a sense, like, are they coming to you? Do you go to them? I, I assume it's a bit of both. Like, from your perspective, is this a priority? For a junior mining company, like I, I'm assume a senior mining company, it's it's definitely a priority. If you're Barrick or or someone else, 
or tech, but if you're some junior miner, is it a priority? And, you know, how much of a priority from your perspective, is it not enough of a priority for junior miners? How do you see it? So I would say that the, the juniors are certainly focused on ESG and, and they they realize that that's their calling card to be able to do business in, in, in remote communities. What I would say is there's been a lack of providing uh, that information in ESG reports. They're doing the right things, um, but they're certainly not getting that third-party verification. And the way that I would see a junior distinguishing itself, and so again, this comes back to being able to attract capital, would have that that ESG report verified. Um, and so when they go to you know these investment funds, they can say, we're doing all the right things. And by the way, we've had that independently verified. And so in my mind, that should put that company on a higher tier than someone who's not doing it. And so I think it's a very important thing for, for, for juniors to be doing. I'm not sure enough of them are publicly stating what they're doing. And, and getting that verification would just be that kind of next step. And, and I think that's where until capital decisions are based on ESG reporting, it's tough to convince them it's the right thing to do. I could imagine that. Eric, do you have anything to add on that? Oh, I mean, I just I think I, I can I can sympathize a bit with juniors to the extent that, you know, obviously, you know, they may or may not actually be, you know, producing any greenhouse gas emissions. But uh, no doubt from an investment decision perspective, uh, you know, their their angle on social impact or their, you know, their efforts in that area are, are critical to to the investment decision. And so I, I think that uh, what Dean said was was really important in terms of they need to understand the extent to which you know assurance over that could impact an investor's decision. Absolutely. And I think a, a fund's decision, just being proactive in that whole area. So it seems to me with all you know our era, this whole idea of fake news and everything and what's real, as we kind of go deeper into this digital environment, uh, it seems like this is be- going to become like a more and more important, a bigger and bigger issue that this whole kind of assurance of, I suppose, facts or of, of, of things being a certain way is just going to become more important. Where do you see things going, Eric? You know, it's it's interesting. We're starting to see things evolve. Obviously, um, you know, from, from an investor perspective, there's the demand on ESG. We're even seeing uh, from the, the, the bodies that govern financial statements are starting to push to have, you know, these uh, additional performance measures within the financial statements. And probably audited. So even the the regulators are starting to push to have things like cash costs and other things like that get audited. So I, I think there's a push from a um, either a regulatory or an investor perspective for that. Uh, I mentioned internally what how you can imagine the demand um, escalating for this, whether it be through these large capital projects that require some more comfort. So I, I think the demand is there. And I guess the other side of the equation is, as I mentioned before, that the technology is there as well. So, you know, the last piece of the puzzle is, you know, are, are we as assurance providers in a position to, you know, to provide that, that level of assurance? And I would say in short, yes, I think it's there. Yeah, no, I certainly think we're, we're on the cusp of something, something larger in terms of, of companies seeking that assurance on, on non-financial information. I think those that are proactive in that approach, I think they'll see the benefit either through um, share price performance, so the, their valuations will will reflect the fact that they're providing assurance on on data outside of the financial statements, uh, or you know they'll they'll be easier for them to access capital. 
Uh, and so as we talked about companies, you know, going out and, and constructing billion dollar projects, that becomes even more critical because the availability of that funding is critical, you know, to their success. And so again, being proactive and providing that information in a transparent way, um, I think is pretty important and, and we'll continue and, and um, you know, companies are going to see the benefit of that. Okay. And finally, uh, the last sort of topic I kind of want to tackle is government. Do you ever get invited by the government to audit things? Uh, does that ever happen? Or what's your relationship with the government? Uh, do, do they, is there any sort of, like, I guess they make regulations. Like, what is that relationship, Dean, in terms of how, say, assurance works with, say, government? Uh, is there a direct relationship or indirect? Or um, so, so I would say, Adrian, they, they set regulation then which uh, results in whether um, you know companies need to get auditors involved and so um, you, you know the example that I would have is with respect to um, uh, payments to, to, to government um, so there's reporting in Canada where Canadian companies need to report you know whatever payments they've they've made to either federal provincial or municipal governments and so at the time you know the Canadian government didn't require, those reports to be audited. However, if they came back and looked at your reports or a company's reports and found there to be errors, you know, the, the, the penalties could be quite stiff. And so that was their way to try to encourage companies uh, to have that information um, audited rather, just rather than just compiled by internal sources. Um, so that's really kind of their role. So we, we wouldn't work with them necessarily directly, uh, but it would be through their regulation to determine um, you know, how much level of involvement auditors would necessarily have in the preparation of that information. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Eric, do you have anything to add to that? Yeah, I would agree. I mean, in general, um, you know, the government's role continues to be to identify, you know, areas where there's demand for that assurance. Another example would be conflict minerals reporting. You see that in the U.S. in certain areas. So absolutely, uh, you know, big, certainly. Big Exactly, exactly. And so you're starting to see the government stepping in and saying, hey, I think I think users should should get this. Um, and so I think you're seeing more and more of that activity. Those two examples are all from the last couple of years. It's funny, you hear the use case again of blockchain where it's like this idea that you could verify the copper that's say in an Apple iPhone or mm -hmm. rare earth, whatever it is, and that you could actually know what that where it came from and know that okay it didn't come from some conflict zone or whatever the case is that it was kind of might say ethically mined for lack of a better word absolutely adrian i think that's the next iteration um, where consumers when they go into you know a store to buy that smartphone or looking to buy an electric vehicle uh, would want to know where do those minerals come from uh, and and that will sway their their decision in terms of what they're going to purchase. And so oftentimes mining companies don't think they have a consumer. Uh, they just figure, you know, whatever I produce goes to a refiner uh, and that's it. But ultimately I do think um, consumer behaviors will start to drive some of these decisions that mining companies make around providing assurance on, on, on this kind of information. This has been extremely informative actually, because it's a whole sort of area that I'm, frankly, not super familiar with, but I can immediately see the importance after talking to you guys. Thank you both Dean Brownsteiner and Eric Simmons from EY Canada, Assurance Partners in Mining at EY Canada. 
Thank you for joining me on the podcast and do come back. Our pleasure. Thanks. Thanks, Adrian. Yeah, thanks, thanks Adrian. Wasn't that fascinating? I, I went from something that was just, that frankly, I'd barely even heard of assurance to now I, I think it's like an omni-important thing were I to be running a, a mining company or some other public company or private. So with that, I, I really hope you enjoyed that interview. It was a pleasure. Thanks once again to Dean and Eric for providing the insight. And if you enjoyed the show, leave us a review in the Apple Podcast directory. Lots of great stuff coming up. Until next week, take care.